I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors. Today, I'm interviewing Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst and best-selling author, on his new book, The Trial of the Century, about the Scopes Monkey Trial that took place in July 1925 and inspired the famous play and movie, Inherit the Wind. The book came out on May 30, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on September 7, 2023. Enjoy. So now uh, it's my privilege to introduce and to introduce our speaker, Greg Jarrett. One of our guests today, Tom Leppert, former mayor of Dallas, my close friend. Turns out Greg and Tom went to college together at Claremont McKenna College a few years ago. We won't say how long ago. When I had dinner with Greg last night and I told him Tom was coming, he said, oh yeah, Tom, he was the president of the student body. Uh, no surprise. You know Greg from the great work he does on television for years, most recently for Fox. He's also quite a accomplished and successful uh, historian. His prior books have been New York Times bestsellers, and, uh, and this one has certainly done extremely well, as Ken points out, about such a, a fascinating subject that uh, most of you are familiar with because you've seen the play or the movie Inherit the Wind. Uh, which in many ways tracks the facts of this trial of the century. But please welcome Greg Jarrett. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, uh, Tom and I went to school together. He was a serious academic. I was chasing girls. Uh, thank you to the Shackelford Firm. John, thank you so much for helping us, and, and Tomage, uh, I'll never be able to thank you enough. We did an event last night. We've got a couple more later today, and he uh, is inexhaustible. He works uh, hard to put these things together in many things. I appreciate it. And thank you to all the sponsors as well. Uh, and getting up uh, early in the morning before you go to work and coming over here, listening to some old guy. Uh, Tom and I are both 68 years old. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and the only difference is his hair is gray and mine isn't. Uh, and no, I don't color my hair. <laughs> Pay no attention to social media. No, nor is it a toupee, which everybody insists that it is. Anybody who wants to pull on it, you're welcome to do that. Anyway. Go ahead. All right. So let's, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, most lawyers like me, uh, growing up, our legal hero that inspired us to want to be a lawyer uh, was Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. But Greg, you had a different role model hero growing up, and that was Clarence Darrow. And you opened the book with your long history of being a fan of Clarence Darrow from the time you were a young teenager. So tell the story of how you first connected with Darrow and the, and the impact he's had on you. Yeah, my entire life is, is driven by serendipity. Everything's accidental. 
Uh, I was a lawyer, but fell into TV accidentally. Um, but how did I become a lawyer? Because sort of randomly, when I was 13 years old, I plucked a book off my father's bookshelf. Uh, and it was a biography on Clarence Darrow by the great writer Irving Stone, who had written The Agony and the Ecstasy about Michelangelo, A Lust for Life, uh, about, about Van, Van Gogh. And, you know, so there was this book, and it was kind of a handsome, covered, navy blue book, a gold lettering, Irving Stone. Uh, and I opened it up, and there was this beautiful picture of Clarence Darrow, and I didn't know who he was. Who the hell is this guy? They wrote a whole book about him. I better read it. And I did, and I became fascinated with Darrow. I, I deeply admired his passion for the law, his abiding sense of justice, and his unyielding commitment to civil liberties. He became known as the attorney for the damned, uh, the lost, the underprivileged, uh, the disenfranchised. Those were his treasured clients. And he gave them what they yearned for, uh, forgiveness and hope and charity and mercy, but most of all, the kind of decency that nobody else would give them. And yes, it's true that, that Darrow was a liberal and an agnostic. I'm neither. But it wasn't the politics of Darrow that moved me. It was his principles, his values. They became mine, and that's the reason I decided to become a lawyer. Great story. Cheryl, now in the Scopes trial, that's the subject of your book, and the trial took place in July 1925, just so you can kind of plug it into your own uh, awareness of, of time, you had Clarence Darrow, who is the most famous lawyer in the country, going head-to-head -head with William Jennings Bryan, who was uh, an extraordinarily populist, popular populist politician, try to say that fast, who had been the Democratic Party's nominee for President of the United States in 1896, again in 1900, and again in 1908. Imagine getting your party's nomination three times. Of course, he lost all three times. But once his political career was over, he became something of a religious zealot. Uh, so you got the most famous lawyer on the, in the country on one side, you've got this uh, extremely formerly popular politician, now well-known religious zealot. Had these two men, Greg, ever crossed paths before the Scopes trial? Oh, they absolutely had, and in fact had become quite good friends. At the Chicago Convention in 1896, uh, Brian was a young, handsome, magnetic uh, speaker, uh, brilliant oratory. He was a dark horse candidate. Nobody expected him to get the nomination for the Democrat Party. But he delivered one of the greatest uh, addresses ever in American history, uh, known as the Cross of Gold speech. A rather dry subject, mind you. It was about uh, currency, silver versus gold. And he, 
wasn't so much the content of the speech as Darrow later explained. It was the, the poetic, mesmerizing oratory. And Darrow learned a lot from that. Uh, and he was so impressed that he campaigned for uh, Bryant in 1896, again in 1900. They lost to William McKinley. Uh, in the 1908 uh, election against uh, William Howard Taft, again, Brian Laws, uh, Darrow decided he wasn't going to back uh, Brian. He didn't oppose him, but he saw Brian take a turn. Brian did, as Talmadge pointed out, become a, a religious zealot. He became the fundamentalist leader among Protestants. And following World War II or World War I, you know, American, America began to turn inward. Uh, and this deep religious fervor took over the nation. And led by Bryan, they began persuading state legislators to do things like ban books on science. And in particular, they took direct aim at evolution. And uh, you know, Brian managed to help get past a law in Tennessee which made it a crime for a teacher to teach Darwin's theory of evolution. Uh, even though the state-approved textbook contained a subchapter on evolution. And John Scopes, amiable 25-year-old, there you now see. we have a picture. That is John Scopes. Yeah, there you see a picture of Scopes. Now, Scopes didn't wear glasses, uh, but he, he thought he needed to look older for this portrait, so he borrowed somebody's glasses. He was 25 years old. He's 25 years old. John Scopes gets arrested because Tennessee uh, had passed this law making it a crime to teach evolution. It, Think about that. He is arrested and criminally charged for doing his job, teaching out of a textbook approved by the state. Students could read about evolution, but the teacher couldn't utter the name evolution or Charles Darwin. Uh, it was a period of time in which academic freedom, free speech itself, was at the precipice in America. And the courage of this 25-year-old school teacher and his intrepid lawyer, Clarence Darrow, in my judgment, saved America from stepping into the abyss of censorship and suppression. Now, this very famous trial in July 1925 took place in a town of 1,800 people called Dayton, Tennessee. So, Greg, how did a very small town become the venue for this trial of the century? It was intentional. Uh, you know, Dayton, Tennessee, here's the, the brain trust of Dayton, Tennessee, the town leaders. Uh, on the left-hand side with the classes is the diminutive uh, mining engineer by the name of George Rapalaya. You know, he was the instigator of everything in town. 
The man sitting next to him is Walter White, not to be confused with Breaking Bad and Brian Cranston. I'm pretty sure he wasn't cooking up some uh, stuff. He was the superintendent. And standing, uh, looking over the shoulder of the superintendent is Doc Robinson, who ran Robinson's Drugstore, which was the, the center of commerce and the center of gossip in town. And to the right is an assistant uh, school superintendent. Dayton, Tennessee, population 1800, had seen better times. It was a mining uh, county. Uh, and there were several mines on the outskirts of town, and mining is what drove the economy. But they had a couple of terrible mining explosions, each of which killed 20 people and injured scores of others. And the mines slowly began uh, to uh, go out of business, which meant that the town was going to dry up economically. So Rapalea, the instigator on the left, comes up with this idea. He's reading the Chattanooga newspaper and reads the story of how they've criminalized uh, the teaching of evolution. And he comes up with the bright idea, maybe we have a school teacher here who taught evolution out of the textbook and he'll volunteer to be arrested and criminally charged. John Scopes is playing tennis down the street. And, you know, Doc Robinson sends a little boy over. Go, go get, uh, you know, teacher John Scopes and have him come here. So Scopes, uh, you know, all sweaty in his tennis dogs, goes down to the drugstore and they put the proposition to him. And they say, well, did you, did you ever teach evolution to your uh, students? And, and mind you, he was really the football coach and baseball coach. He was just the substitute teacher in biology that spring semester, 1925. And he says, well, I taught out of the textbook and there's a subchapter on evolution in the textbook. I don't actually remember teaching evolution, but uh, as long as you can prove I did, then okay, I'll do it. You've heard of crazy people wanting to become famous. This is one of those stories. Yeah, it's really, it's really amazing. So, so the whole thing was a setup, but it legitimately did test what was clearly an unconstitutional law. The problem is, uh, you know, we, we can all, especially the lawyers in the room, appreciate it's a violation of the First Amendment Establishment Clause, right? You are basically, uh, the statute said, if you teach evolution, uh, you're against the Bible, and therefore it's a crime. Well, that's a, you're establishing religion, right? But the Supreme Court hadn't made the Establishment Clause binding uh, on states uh, until 1947, a little more than two decades after the Scopes trial. So Clarence Darrow couldn't really make the constitutional argument um, that he would be able to do today. And eventually in 1968, U.S. Supreme Court didn't toss out a similar statute, I think it was in Oklahoma, that criminalized the teaching of evolution. And they quoted Clarence Darrow's wisdom during the Scopes trial. But what's amazing, I mean, here this town is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking because of these mining disasters. And these guys say, I know how to create a surge in population. 
let's have a trial over this statute. They actually believed that this would uh, be a springboard for growing the city. I mean, it's, it, it, that's one of the more fascinating parts of the story that they could view it with thinking that would be the outcome. Yeah, and, and, and it did for about a week. <laughs> but, you know, so much, I mean, it was such worldwide attention focused. You know, journalists the world over converged on tiny Dayton, Tennessee. And it, it became a carnival-like atmosphere. Um, Speaking of carnival. Yeah. All right. So here is the great William Jennings Bryan. So gratified that he got this law passed and others like them that he volunteered to prosecute John Scopes and convict him. Clarence Darrow is sitting in his office in Chicago and he's grown to really loathe Brian. And he reads that Brian is gonna be the prosecutor against Scopes. And he decides, he sends off a telegram volunteering to defend John Scopes for free, setting up this titanic clash between two of the greatest figures in America. So when Brian stepped off the train in his Florida safari hat, he was peddling real estate in Florida in those days. Um, the band played, there were hundreds of people cheering him on. When Darrow arrives, it's a rather muted reception. He's the devil. I mean, remember, this is the Bible Belt. Uh, you know, a guy like Darrow, a slick Chicago lawyer, a liberal, an agnostic. Yeah, he's the devil. So here you see, here you see John Scopes on the left-hand side, always, you know, wearing a bow tie, shirt sleeves rolled up, shaking hands with his famous attorney, Clarence Darrow. Standing in the middle is John Neal. A, an incredibly talented lawyer who also joined the defense case. And on the right-hand side, you can see uh, a member of the press. There were more than 200 members of the press who converged on date to witness the trial of the century. So speaking of a circus-like atmosphere. <coughs> so... It really was. I mean, you've got all these reporters showing up. You've got thousands of people from miles around who decide to go to Dayton, Tennessee to watch this incredible clash of two huge, uh, larger-than-life personalities in America, American culture. So street preachers are standing on top of vehicles in the middle of the street, uh, preaching against uh, evolution and the evils of Charles Darwin. You've got the holy roller religious revivals on the outskirts of town. The anti-evolution league sets up shop and posts huge banners all over town. Read your Bible. They even put one in the courtroom. And there, there's another picture of read your Bible. But if we can go back to the uh, trained chimpanzee. So, but the real star attraction was this little fellow by the name of Joe Mendy. He was a trained chimpanzee that a circus owner brought to town. 
And if you look closely, he's wearing his checkered suit, his bow tie, his hat. If you look closely, uh, slapped over his left shoulder are miniature golf clubs. And he would take them out and he'd swing those golf clubs and people would take pictures. And then you had to pay 25 bucks, big money in those days, to have your picture taken, shaking hands with Joe Mendy here. He would uh, sit astride a pony and children would uh, guide the pony around the town square. He would sit in uh, Doc Robinson's drugstore sipping sodas. And the, his trainer brought all, along a little miniature piano and he had been taught to bang out certain notes on the piano. So this was the amusement. It really was a circus. And of course, you know, miniature monkeys uh, were sold, monkey dolls were sold everywhere in the stores. They called it the monkey trial, a misconception uh, of Darwin's theory of evolution that, you know, man descended from monkeys, which is not at all what uh, origin of species is about or descent of man. Nevertheless, this gives you an idea of uh, what it was like, 1925. And in addition to that, this was the first trial that was ever broadcast live on radio across the nation, courtesy WGN, set up microphones inside the courtroom. You can see there are 38 pictures in the book. You can see in some of the photographs, newsreel cameras at the back of the courtroom. And there was a plane with the engine running on the outskirts of town. And every day after the trial, the newsreel, the newsreels uh, were driven over to the plane, which flew to Chicago, and they were dis distributed to movie houses everywhere. People flocked to the movie houses just to watch the trial of the century. And the most notable journalist covering the trial was H.L. Mencken. And if you saw the movie Inherit the Wind, the character of Mencken was played by Gene Kelly. So talk about uh, how uh, Mencken saw the trial and, and what he reported to the nation about it. Yeah, Mencken was the most popular journalist in America. His uh, columns for the Baltimore uh, Sun newspaper were syndicated throughout the United States. He was a brilliant wordsmith uh, and it had a very caustic, cutting uh, sense of humor. And he hated Brian. He hated Brian because he saw Brian as someone who was a false prophet, who was superimposing his religious zealotry on everybody else and getting these laws passed, which suffocated uh, learning and intellectual freedom. Uh, Mencken shows up and he's a celebrity in his own right. What's so interesting is, uh, you know, Mencken was not an attractive man, as my mother would say, uglier in a mud fence on a rainy day. And Hollywood decided uh, to take a little bit of literary license. And uh, they picked Gene Kelly, a heartthrob, handsome, popular star, to portray the character of H.L. Mencken. But I must say that Frederick March as William Jennings Bryan, Spencer Tracy, the brilliant, brilliant Spencer Tracy as Clarence Darrow. Uh, in Inherit the Wind. If you've ever seen the movie, 
Um, it is a fictionalized version. So much of the storyline uh, is completely untrue. But a lot of the cross-examination in the trial is fairly accurate in a condensed way. So let's talk about the trial. And uh, there you go. Some of the theatrics and, and, and the circumstances of the trial. Yeah, this is what I think is an iconic photograph of Clarence Darrow in his element. Uh, you can't see his suspenders here, but he, he's, he's wearing what he always referred to as his galluses. Uh, Darrow was also a, an electric speaker. Uh, and you would sometimes see two Darrows. He, I mean, in front of a judge, he could overcome any argument with the sheer force of his intellect. He knew the Constitution. He, he knew statutory law by heart. In front of a jury, he was a different man. He would, uh, you know, tell local folklore and stories to make a point. He never talked over the heads of jurors. Um, and he never talked down to them. He understood them because he was a, a keen observer of the motives that move men, as he often said. And so in front of a jury, he was a completely different person. And here he is arguing for the sanctity of academic freedom and free speech. It's a great photograph. So let's talk about, you know, the trial was obviously presided over by a judge. It was a jury trial. Talk about the judge and also about who was on the jury. Well, it was rigged. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> it was 100 years ago. Although, come to think of it, not much has changed. <laughs> so the judge was John Ralston an ordained minister, right, who had spoken publicly against the evils of evolution. Um, recusal? No. The jury, I mean, again, this is the Bible Belt. All men, of course, 1925, women weren't allowed to be on the jury. Uh, one could not read at all. Three of the jurors had read no other book except the Bible, and only one of the jurors had a sort of vague, faint understanding, he thinks, of evolution, right? So these, you know, I mean, they're not terribly educated people. And Darrow wanted to educate them. At his own expense, he hired uh, expert witnesses, and here are seven of them. He had a dozen of them. Some of the nation's uh, best-known theologians and world-renowned scientists. And Darrow's argument was going to be as follows. Uh, evolution and creationism are compatible. That Darwin's theory does not undermine uh, the story of uh, the divine creation of man in Genesis. They're harmonious. Uh, they're compatible. The judge would have none of it. Uh, and as a consequence, there were several days of arguments over whether 
these esteemed scientists and theologians could testify. And they clearly should have been allowed to testify, given the fact that the jurors didn't know anything. Uh, but the judge was so determined to convict Scopes that in the end, he disallowed it. And he essentially refused to explain himself. He just, by fiat, unilaterally decided, no, they're not going to testify. And it's a shame, because I think it would have uh, changed the outcome of the case. Now, during the trial, the judge, Ralston, made the decision that the trial would move from this large second-story courtroom, and it would move outside on the town square. So what was behind that decision? Well, so Darrow is down and out. He knows he's losing, right, which is a very uncomfortable feeling for him, but not the first time. And he decides uh, to come up with a secret plan. And his plan is to put William Jennings Bryan, the prosecutor, on the witness stand for cross-examination, which is unheard of. He can't do that. Prosecutor stood up and said, Your Honor, he can't do that. And the judge said, You can't do that. But, you know, Darrow knew something that few other people understood. He, he knew, Brian, that his ego was as big as all outdoors, that he couldn't resist the temptation to take center stage in a trial broadcast live on radio with the newsreel cameras rolling. And so uh, he stands up and says, Your Honor, I have nothing to fear. I'm happy to tell the Lord's truth to these fine people. And so he fell into Darrow's trap. The judge was concerned that with hundreds of people packed inside the courtroom and the, the stifling the of the summer, summer heat, yeah, it yeah, is hot. I mean, the, you know, there were no fans, uh, huge windows, and the sun is streaming through. I mean, it, it was a cooker inside there. So fearing that the courtroom on the second floor is going to collapse with the weight of the people and the heat, he decides to move the trial outdoors. There was a platform elevated left over from Independence Day just outside the courtroom with bleachers. So what happens is uh, thousands of people, because there were thousands of people who couldn't get inside the courtroom, but, but they could hear it over the microphone. So there they are in the bleachers in the background, thousands of people. And there you see on the left, William Jennings Bryan, and on the right, Clarence Darrow, for the famous cross-examination of Bryan. So talk about uh, that cross-examination and how it impacted not only the trial, but impacted history. Well, the New York Times described it as the greatest courtroom confrontation in Anglo-Saxon history. And it really was. It was brilliant. Uh, what Brian didn't understand, because he was so self-absorbed, is that his old friend Clarence Darrow, the agnostic, knew more about the Bible than he, the great fundamentalist leader, did. Uh, Darrow's father had gone to seminary school. His mother was deeply devout and would take Clarence 
to church every Sunday. And Clarence Darrow had almost a photographic memory. I mean, he just had this brilliant brain, um, had committed many parts of the Bible to memory. So as I say, he, Brian didn't understand that the guy's going to cross the guy cross-examining him knows more than he does about the subject matter. And so Darrow slowly and methodically begins asking these penetrating questions about the Bible in an effort to show that Brian's belief that everything in the Bible should be taken literally is foolish. And in so proving, he hopes to sow the seeds of doubt in the prosecution's case. And so Daryl goes through, he begins with uh, Jonah and the whale, the notion that a human being could exist in the gut of a fish for three days seemed utterly preposterous. And yet Brian clung to what he thought was the literal reality of that. And then Darrow moves on to Joshua making the sun stand still, when in fact it's really making the earth stand still. And if that happened, the earth would turn into a molten mass. And again, Brian is beginning to look a little foolish in his strident adherence to beliefs. And then he moves on to the great flood. And then he moves on to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the talking serpent. And Brian doesn't have a lot of good answers to this. And the more he stumbles and fumbles in the searing heat, the more he's fanning himself, and the more he's gulping down huge glasses of water and the sweat is streaming down his face and he's mopping his head with his handkerchief. And he is completely unnerved. And by the end of it, Brian is utterly destroyed. And the crowd that hated Daryl, the devil, surrounds Daryl afterwards and cheers him on. And Daryl looks over his shoulder, still sitting in the chair on the elevated platform, is William Jennings Bryan, and he's all alone, not a friend in the world. He has lost the supporters. He's lost the crowd. It was a humiliating defeat, so much so that Brian, who stayed in Dayton for several days trying to resurrect his tattered, broken reputation, laid down for a nap a couple of days later and never woke up. Here is, uh, here is Scopes. Now, the interesting thing about this case is uh, Scopes was convicted, Daryl lost. But they talked about it afterwards, and, and Daryl said, we won. We won in the court of public opinion, which is more important uh, than a court of law. And the case was eventually reversed on appeal. Uh, but it's true that this turned the tide in America. The banning of scientific books ended. The criminalizing of evolution, uh, that ended as well. And it unleashed uh, an openness toward 
learning and in particular science. And so in the end, I think it was a huge victory. Uh, Scopes was almost an afterthought in the trial. He only spoke twice, once during the arraignment uh, when he said not guilty. And then at the end of the trial, after he was convicted by law, he was allowed to make a statement. He made a brief but very moving statement that he will continue to fight this unjust law because to do anything else would be a violation of his ideal of being a teacher. And so for the final photograph. Here is uh, the casket of William Jennings Bryan with an American Legion honor guard. He had served in the military. Uh, and they're loading it onto a special Pullman car uh, by order of the President of the United States uh, to be taken from Dayton, Tennessee to Washington, D.C. for burial at Arlington National Cemetery. And as the train slowly pulled out of the station, the tracks were lined with Brian's admirers. And, you know, Brian caused his own demise, but he was a great man, uh, a brilliant man who uh, became an icon in American history. But it's really a sad epitaph uh, to a life that had been well lived, but it ended uh, in, in such a humiliating, embarrassing way. I mean, who needs Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, and Gene Kelly when you've got Greg Jarrett <laughs> to tell the story of the tribe? Do we have any questions? Yes. Yes. Lane, our friend from Hi, last night. Yeah, you know, I, I always wondered whether, after I read the Darrow book when I was a teenager, uh, I noticed on the bulletin board of the high school uh, auditions for uh, the production of Inherit the Wind. So the, I auditioned and got a bit part. I had all of six words. Uh, uh, I memorized them, you know, practiced them day after day for weeks and weeks, convinced that I was, I was going to screw it up. Uh, no, you thought you were going to be the next Spencer Tracy. <laughs> the, the words were, a photograph, Mr. Brady, a photograph. Um, <laughs> I mean, how can you screw that up? So at any rate, uh, you know, sort of the, the genesis of it, came there. But I realized at the time that uh, this was a novelized version. And I wondered about the truth. What was the truth? I, I wrote a couple of books and I didn't want to do any more current events books. And I always had in the back of my mind, you know, the Scopes Monkey trial. Because I discovered that um, people of a certain age had never heard of it. You know, when I pitched it to Simon & Schuster, uh, all of the executives who were under the age of 40 had never heard of it. And, and I, I said, well, you, you just gave me the reason why it should be published. So I, I went to the courthouse in Dayton, Tennessee, which at the time was closed for renovations, although 
They'll never change the second floor courtroom. It's still the way it was in 1925. But I met the young archivist who had a key to the building. And after I uh, took him to lunch, uh, he said, well, let's go over to the court. I got a key, I'll let you. Here we go, he takes me up to the second floor. And, you know, just being there was really a moving event for me in my life. And he said, uh, let, me, uh, let me take you down to the basement where, you know, it's our archives. We have some pictures down there. And the basement walls were all lined with these beautiful photographs of the trial. And he, I, I said, you don't happen to have a transcript of it. I said, because there are some sort of, sort of published transcripts on the internet that don't seem like they're accurate. And he said, they're not, but I got the real thing. And, you know, takes me into a room, we blow the dust off this thing, and it's the original trial transcript, gavel to gavel. Um, and so I uh, spent endless hours uh, reviewing the trial transcript. And I also got my hands on the judge's uh, court reporter notes in longhand in a huge leather book. And I poured over the, those, spent days and days and days. And so uh, Don Yeager uh, was recruited by my literary agent um, to help me. Uh, I'd written my first two books all by myself, and, and, and it was a hellacious experience. Um, and my wife forbid me from writing another book. And I, I, had, I said, well, if I get somebody to help, how about that? So we really split the work. I uh, devoted my energies to telling the story of the trial itself based on the transcripts, the handwritten notes, and some other material. And, and Don really dug into the history of the town and the characters and so forth. And then we blended it together. So um, it was certainly a lot easier than having to write another book, which my wife didn't let me do anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's how it happened. Yes, sir. Would you stand up, please, so everybody can hear you? Yes. Well, um, he never recovered from the trial of the century. Uh, you know, he had visions of maybe himself one day becoming a lawyer, and he tried going to law school, but everybody at the school, the professors, the students, knew who he was, and they expected him to be the next Clarence Darrell. And there was too much pressure for him. Remember, 1925, I mean, in addition to Brian and, and, uh, and Daryl being so famous, so was John Scopes. And he was admired by some and vilified by others, uh, depending upon your religious point of view. And uh, he escaped to South America and uh, became an alcoholic. Uh, in horrible health, um, met a woman who, you know, helped save his life. He married her. Um, and he eventually came to terms with his uh, role in history. Um, but, you know, in, in so many ways, it destroyed him. The way it destroyed William Jennings Bryan. Mm -hmm. 
I guess I'll ask. Oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. <clears throat> yes. No, I don't think he did uh, consider fictionalizing it. Um, you know, he 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 was such a, a a genius in front of an audience, in front of a jury. Uh, he dreamed of giving up the practice of law because he was tired of it, and he wanted uh, to make his living giving speeches about uh, the contentious issues of the day and his view of it. Um, I do recommend reading uh, his autobiography, Story of My Life. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I think you'll appreciate, in addition to the Scopes monkey trial, is his take on the death penalty in the Leopold and Loeb case, famous, famous case, 1924, the year before. Uh, two young men, brilliant, each of them, well-educated, thought they could commit the perfect crime. And so they kidnapped 14-year-old Bobby Franks and murdered him and dumped his body on the side of a country road. Well, they weren't as smart as they thought. They were caught. Darrell saved their lives, delivering a two-day-long closing argument that is utterly brilliant. Um, and you can read portions of it that are published. Um, that had a huge impact on America's view of the death penalty. And it changed a lot of minds. And frankly, it shaped my own view of the death penalty um, since the moment I read that chapter in Irving Stone's book about uh, Leopold and Loeb. For the last question, which I'll ask, the, the title of the book, Trial of the Century, <clears throat> Greg, one of your early assignments as a legal analyst uh, broadcaster on television was the O.J. Simpson trial, which took place in 1995, I guess, and uh, which many people thought was the trial of the century. So, so give us your thoughts, having researched and written this book, as well as having covered the O.J. trial. Why was the Scopes trial the trial of the century? Well, there, you know, there have been a lot of famous trials in American history, from the Lindbergh kidnapping trial, uh, Leopold and Loeb, uh, the Nuremberg trials, um, the Chicago 7, uh, and yes, the O.J. Simpson case, which I covered in Los Angeles every day for an agonizingly long, you know, nine months until the verdict. Um, in, I've covered hundreds and hundreds of trials. I tried cases myself early in, in my career. I've never seen such overwhelming evidence of guilt as I saw in the O.J. Simpson case. <laughs> That's a whole other story. At um, any rate, it was a murder case, a double murder case. Well, yeah, sadly, that, those are a dime a dozen. The only thing extraordinary about the O.J. Simpson case was uh, O.J. Simpson was a famous football player and celebrity. Uh, and, you know, he had a celebrity attorney, Mr. Johnny, uh, Johnny Cochran, who, who became a, a good friend of mine. 
Um, so it pales in comparison to what was at stake in the Scopes Monkey Trial. Our, our liberties, our freedoms, which Darrow fought for. And successfully, yes, he lost the case, but he won, as I say, the larger, more important <coughs> argument. Um, and, you know, so as America was on the precipice back then in 1925, um, we didn't fall into the abyss of suffocating learning in America and science, uh, thanks to Darrow. And that made it, in my judgment, the trial of the century. Well, we want to close, and thank you all for coming. We want to say a special thanks to Greg for, number one, writing a, a great book. And if you're interested in purchasing additional copies, they're $25 each. Just give Sonia the money. But if you haven't gotten it signed, Greg's going to be here to sign uh, any copies of yours that haven't been signed yet. But uh, let's, let's give Greg a special thanks. Thank you very, very much. Greg Jarrett's wonderful new book on the Scopes Monkey Trial is absolutely riveting and gave me a much greater appreciation for Clarence Darrow, arguably the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.